This is the Washington Indivisible Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Every Washingtonian deserves to feel safe, whether in their community or at the hands of law enforcement. In the wake of the murder of George Floyd by police officers, Washington state passed a number of laws aimed at reforming law enforcement, addressing things like vehicle pursuits, the use of physical force and no knock warrants. But law enforcement, along with state Republicans and some Democrats, have worked to roll back many of these reforms. To talk about this and also help unpack some newly proposed police reform legislation, we have Leslie Cushman. She is founder and head of the Washington Coalition for Police Accountability. Leslie, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me today. Well, thank you so much for being here. And Anoka Harat is counsel for police practices and immigration with the ACLU of Washington. Anoka, hello. How are you? Hi, great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it is an important topic, ever timely, unfortunately. And, you know, I think that's really where I want to start our discussion here, because, you know, we're going to unpack this year's legislation. But I would love to frame our discussion by getting both of your thoughts on where things stand and and recent events. So as I'm sure you both saw on Tuesday's State of the Union, we saw President Biden acknowledge the parents of Tyree Nichols. And then he called upon Congress to, quote, finish the job on police reform. So I'll just ask you both, where do you feel like we stand right now as a nation on the issue of police reform? Anoka, can we can we start with you? Sure. You know, I'm I'm proud of what Washington has done. I think Washington has been a leader in pushing for some of this this police reform. And we at the same time, we have to remember that before 2021, when when a number of these bills were passed into law, there was a Washington state law on the books that said in order to arrest somebody, officers can use, they can effectuate the arrest by any means necessary, you know, sort of a blank check to use force. And so in a lot of ways, law enforcement wasn't regulated until 2021. So it's still such a new change. And the use of force law that was passed is transformative. And it is, um, Washington is a leader in some of this police reform um, and there's still so much work to be done because, again, as I mentioned, it was as if police were unregulated before and there isn't going to be one law that fixes everything. Um, there is really it has to be a broader approach. Well, Leslie, and, and what Anoka is saying here is that things are essentially new and she's touting a lot of, of what is accomplished here in Washington. And I think uh, we can uh, be cautiously optimistic about some of that work. And we'll talk about it in just a second. But I'll just ask you kind of the larger question. Where do you feel the discussion really is right now? Uh, it seems to almost be this new uh, uh, cycle that we find ourselves in. So we will have a police killing, uh, which then sparks the call for reform. And then we get some incremental reform, which is then followed by a, a backlash uh, where Republicans will use scare tactics to roll back these reforms. And, and you're, you're talking about the work ahead, certainly. Do you think about ways to sort of break us out of this cycle in order to make real progress, Leslie? Well, one of the things that Anoka and I say is that we're solution oriented and uh, we are problem solvers. We uh, like to sit down and talk. We talk with people that are opposed to us. And um, I'm I'm not a big kumbaya person, but it, it does help to talk in person and meet people and realize uh, we've had people say to us, oh, you're not really as scary as we thought. Uh, just when you meet people in person and you share your, your opinions and then you uh, say, well, what, what is solvable here? Could we work on this? And um, I, I wish we could have a revolution 
level change, but I'm not sure it's possible. So I'm willing to keep plugging away uh, at this level, relationship level, and change people's minds. Uh, and we're dealing with an interesting thing in the qualified immunity area right now, where after Memphis, we could have a, a real uh, interest in change, because like, oh, that was terrible. But it just, the impact of Memphis is already gone, as far as I'm concerned. It's last week, yeah. right? So it's the cyclical thing. What 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 does it take to to uh, take make this a serious issue for all Washingtonians? Inoka, is there anything you would add to that? Sure. I think when we see when we do move a step forward and we see the backlash, we can see a couple things from that. We can take away a couple things. One is that what we're doing is working. It's having an impact, you know, and this is actually changing things. And there's a reaction <laughs> to that. And um, another thing I think we can take away from that is how powerful a lobby law enforcement really is. I mean, there is a police chief in every single city. There's 300 departments. And what we saw is each one of them reaching out to their lawmakers as if it's as if they have an army of 300 lobbyists and they use their social media platforms. You know, if every single time a crime happens, they say, oh, well, that's because of the reform law. You know, contact your law, your lawmaker. That's because of the reform laws. You know, so I, I think we are seeing that and, and we do see some um, some lawmakers as well as law enforcement really continue to harp on the sort of failed 1990s tough on crime kind of talking points and policies. And we know that those don't work. You can't punish your way out of out of things like addiction, things like poverty, et cetera, et cetera. And we shouldn't be trying. We know those have failed. And so instead, what we do know is we know the things that keep us safe. We know that housing and education and investing in having people have the things they need helps keep all of us safe. And, and some of the solutions that we have, particularly to prevent police violence, really invest in those kinds of solutions. I love the way that you, you've pulled all of that together because it really is a holistic approach. And, you know, as you say, the pushback really uh, is an indication that there is some power behind uh, what you're doing here. Um, and I, you, you also mentioned the fact that Republican talking points are, are constantly trying to drive fear. Um, you know, we know that when the state legislature passed a number of police reform bills in the last biennium, the narrative a lot of people hear now is that that legislation resulted in increased crime rates. Wesley, I wonder, because I know you delved into this. Can you tell us what the data shows after these these laws were put into place? Well, I'll just tell you straight out that there's no connection between crime rates and these laws. Uh, the crime rates have been um, consistent across the nation. If they've gone up here, they've gone up everywhere, places where there have been no uh, reforms passed. Um, people talk a lot about auto thefts. And uh, if you look at the data on auto thefts, it tracks the price of um, the used car market and supply chain issues. So um, when we hear, it, it is fear, you mentioned fear, and it's a misinformation campaign. Um, our, our data, um, so one of the things is there really isn't good data. Law enforcement has data they need to share with people to be more transparent. We have data on vehicular pursuits. We can talk about that later if you want. That shows that the law passed in 2021 is saving lives and uh, it's reducing fatalities, and there's no connection uh, to the, the crime wave, to smash and grab, to homicides. So 
Um, I don't know. Anoka, you, I'm not the interviewer, but Anoka, well, you actually, you. Leslie, I want to stay right where you are because you've led me exactly where I want to go next, which is to talk about this bill, uh, Senate Bill 5352. Um, this is one common sense safety reform that Republicans want to roll back. This is what you're talking about, uh, police vehicle pursuits. So this would repeal a previous law that sets standard for police risk pursuits. Um, we can unpack a little bit more what this law has accomplished, but just, uh, for, for right now, tell us specifically, if you would, Leslie, what does this existing law stipulate? The existing law is based on best practices. About 12 jurisdictions in the state already had um, restrictions on when um, a vehicular pursuit could be used as a tactic. And it focuses on violent crimes, which are all class A felonies and, uh, and uh, crimes against persons. Uh, and sex crimes, and DUIs, and escapes. So that's what the, the current law says. That's when you can do a pursuit. Uh, and it, it puts some other criteria in place around not asking, getting getting uh, approval from a supervisor. So pursuits are a moment of passion, right? Your adrenaline, they're the opposite of de-escalation. It's decision-making that is on the fly, and involving a supervisor is the best practice. So you get advice. So you're not on your own in this chase. So that's the best practice. Limiting to uh, categories of crimes that don't involve property crimes is a best practice. And um, the rollback, it opens it up to all crimes, which is all felonies, all misdemeanors, all gross misdemeanors. And that's graffiti uh, and shoplifting and uh, trespass would be uh, in that category. So. I don't think that police need to be thinking about chases for those types of crimes, and, and they shouldn't be part of this law. So we're, we're rigorously opposed to the rollback. Yeah, you you started to talk about some of the uh, the numbers around this. And I'm wondering what, if you can just tell me very directly, what has been the impact of this, this current law in terms of saving lives? Well, if we look at um, July 25, 2021, is when the law went into effect. We've had three deaths of of bystanders and passengers since that date. And the same time period, looking back, there were nine. So it's a 67%, almost 70% reduction in fatalities. And and maybe that doesn't sound like very much to anybody. Like we've just, just, had, nine, we've just had nine versus three, but it, those are real people, right? Uh, that's somebody's kid, that's a pedestrian, that's a bystander. Um, and is it worth it because a big screen TV was stolen? So I don't want to sound dismissive. I think property crimes are uh, impactful on everyone's lives. When a car is stolen, it's you ha you're incredibly inconvenienced. You have to uh, get substitute transportation. It's expensive, and so, but it's not worth a life. Perfectly well put. And so for all the reasons that you've just outlined, we are working to defeat this bill. Currently alive, I should mention, as HB 1363, the Senate bill uh, is not advancing. So HB 1363 is the one that you want to uh, to oppose. And, you know, related to this, I want to talk about Bill uh, 1513. This is a traffic safety for all bill. This would limit the sorts of things that law enforcement can pull people over for. So currently, police can pull someone over from any, for anything from a moving violation relation to uh, taillights or expired tags. Inoka, what would 1513 stipulate? 1513 really addresses the rising fatalities and collisions on the road, as well as addressing equity impacts. 
And so what it does is it, it prioritizes moving violations, which are things like distracted driving, DUI, you know, impaired driving, um, failure to signal, et cetera. And it would deprioritize things like non-moving violations, which are equipment failures or expired tabs, regulatory, things like that. And this has two impacts. The first is that it prioritizes resources where we know that when law enforcement does ticket people for those kind of more serious safety violations, that it actually reduces the number of fatalities on the road. It actually is effective in keeping people on the road safe. And the other thing we know is that by reducing those high discretion, those um, non-safety related stops for things like a taillight out, et cetera, that that reduces racial disparity and increases equity. So we are very supportive of this bill. We think it's a way to, to further solutions as well as, um, as yeah, we, we think it's a way of furthering solutions that'll keep us safe. Uh, yeah, I would love for you to expand on that. You know, as you say, police disproportionately pull, disproportionately pull over uh, drivers who are black, Latinx, Native American, Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander. So talk about how this law can potentially improve their safety. That's right. There's disproportionate stops as well as disproportionate searches once someone is already stopped. And so what this bill does is it reduces those high discretion stops and prioritizes safety. And what we see in the data is that there's less racial disparity in safety stops. The other thing it does is it would it would eliminate consent searches, which are always voluntary. We all have the right to say no to being searched under the Constitution. And this would say that for those very low-level, low-risk stops, things that are infractions, they're not even crimes, you're not allowed to ask someone, an officer's not allowed to ask someone whether they would consent to a search. And a consent search, again, not only is it 100% voluntary, it's when there's actually no evidence, when an officer has no evidence of any wrongdoing. And so we're saying for this low-risk stop, they have to be really quick. And so in, in that sense, we're taking the incentive out of using traffic stops as a fishing expedition, because that's where we really see the racial disparity and that with, with that kind of discretion. I want to mention something interesting that this law does it because I had mentioned that some of the reasons that people get pulled over for are, are, are really uh, very minor infractions as say broken taillights, things like that. This law would create a community fund is my understanding. Can you talk about that? That's right. This this law would create a, a grant fund that municipalities and nonprofits could apply for to help low-income road users get in compliance with the law. So what that means is if you can't afford to fix your taillight, you can't afford the ticket that comes with it. And what we do see current in the current system that is focused on sort of punitive enforcement is that you know people can't afford the ticket and that entangles them further into debt and into the criminal legal system. They can even lose their license. They're, you know, they, it could result in a suspended license. You know, and at the end of the day, this person is taking on that much more um, debt, et cetera, and the car is not fixed. <laughs> so no, none of us are any safer. It's a real lose-lose situation. And so the idea behind this community fund is to fund programs that actually solve the problem. So things like taillight installation workshops, you know, or vouchers to get your car fixed or things like fee waivers, because expired tabs can be hundreds of dollars. You know, so trying to get people into compliance without relying on fees and fines and punishment, because we know that those solutions, those are not solutions. We know those things don't work. 
It's really quite remarkable. And you know, it's my understanding that states like Virginia and Oregon and also uh, the city of Seattle uh, has even adopted aspects of this. Can you talk a little bit about how this has worked in these places? Sure. So Virginia has has deprioritized some of their equipment failure stops, as this bill would do. And so have other jurisdictions, places like Connecticut um, and cities really across the country, including Seattle. What we saw is by deprioritizing these non-safety stops, it freed up resources so law enforcement could actually address the kind of conduct like DUI that result in fatalities. And so in both Connecticut and North Carolina, there have been studies that show that actually enforcement of things like DUI goes up and that racial disparity goes down and there's no impact on other crime. I also want to discuss the enforcement aspect here. There is a bill, 1445, House Bill 1445. So this would strengthen the state attorney general's ability to investigate and bring suit against law enforcement agencies or departments for uh, systemic misconduct. So we know what isolated acts of police misconduct can look like. But Leslie, I'll ask you, how is systemic misconduct defined and, and how would it be prosecuted? That's a great question. Uh, systemic misconduct is where in an uh, agency, a uh, law enforcement agency, uh, there's leadership and they have, um, maybe they don't enforce their policies. Might Maybe there are discipline issues. Maybe there are a number of lawsuits for excessive force. And we see that there is a culture there that doesn't take professionalism seriously. And it isn't just, I, I, you mentioned the word isolated, and I'm not going to say that one isn't enough or two or three it it is uh where there there's no system in place to detect misconduct they're not managing misconduct they're not reporting misconduct all these accountability systems uh, that are important uh, for transparency and accountability and so how then would this be uh, prosecuted by the state attorney general this gives the attorney general the authority to do pre-investigations they can subpoena they can get records uh, they can um, sit down and talk, and if that doesn't work, they can then go to uh, court and seek remedies and get injunctions. They can do consent decrees like the Department of Justice does right now at the federal level, and they, they can go to. They have authority to go to court and uh, force a police agency to um, uh, com- comply with uh, with whatever standards and, and methods. A real important part of the bill is model policies on accountability systems. And uh, the AG is going to write um, model policies that can be used by all of the police agencies in the state as a guide for how do you, uh, do you need a complaint system? Do you have a complaint system? Some agencies in the state don't have a way to even make a complaint. And so a, a, a modern professional police agency needs a complaint system. They need investigators. They need ways to uh, discipline and report. They need an appeal system. Uh, That, it gives the public faith in how a a police agency is managing its credibility and it makes the police agency legitimate. Uh, You know, you mentioned uh, consent decrees, and this is a term that comes up often uh, in the discussion about police reform. Anoka, I wonder if you could just give us a very quick thumbnail definition of what a consent decree is. Sure, so under our current system, there isn't a way for an individual to sue a whole department and try to fix a department-wide policy or something like that. So instead, what we have to do is we have to go to the U.S. Department of Justice 
and ask them to intervene, to investigate. And then ultimately, um, if they if they do find that there is our constitutional violations, et cetera, they can bring what's called a consent decree. And a consent decree is sort of a decision that is negotiated both with the, with the city and the department and um, is monitored by a court to make sure that certain reforms are met within the department in order to you know, get their get their conduct back in line with the constitution to ensure that there is, you know, not racially biased policing, et cetera. Well, this leads us directly into a bill uh, called 1025. This is the Access to Fairness Act. So what this would do is lower barriers for families of victims of police violence to bring suit against the police. So certainly what you're talking about with uh, consent decrees comes into play there. Under the current system, Anoka, what are some of the other barriers? Right now, the main barrier, actually, people cannot sue an officer if they violate our Washington constitution, constitutional rights. And I think that comes as a surprise to people, but the only reason we can even sue an officer is because of a federal law that allows lawsuits against the department if an officer has violated people's constitutional rights. Unfortunately, that system is failing right now because of a legal doctrine called qualified immunity, which has been an obstacle in keeping good, important, egregious acts of misconduct out of the courts. And so HB 1025. Just very quickly, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt there. Can you just define, and Leslie, you mentioned this earlier as well. Can you define what qualified immunity is? Qualified immunity is a, is a court-created doctrine that says that if there has been a constitutional violation, so, so someone needs to prove first that there was a constitutional violation, that you know it can be a shield for officers if there hasn't been another case um, showing that that kind of conduct was unconstitutional. So that is that has been a barrier and has been used and kind of abused in the courts. And so, for example, there was a case that came out of the Seattle Police Department where officers tased a woman who is seven months pregnant in her belly, which resulted in her having to give birth prematurely and rush to Harborview. Um, and the court said, yes, that violated her constitutional rights. But because there hasn't been a court case about tasing pregnant pregnant people, the officers didn't know that it was unconstitutional to do that. And so therefore, um, they cannot be held accountable. And um, it, it's, it's a travesty. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm I'm. I'm shaking my head and trying to process everything that you just said. I mean, it's 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 a catch twenty two, and in really some of the darkest and, and worst uh, ways imaginable. So, what would ten twenty five do here? Ten twenty five would let would allow people whose wa- whose rights under the Washington Constitution have been violated by law enforcement bring a lawsuit against the department without that shield of qualified immunity. So just as uh, as an example, say, I mean, everybody has been paying very close attention to uh, the Tyree Nichols case. He was uh, beaten uh, severely by a, uh, a specialty unit in, in of the Memphis Police Department and later died of his injuries. What would this law, if it were in place in Tennessee, allow his family to do? That's right. We saw the horrific killing of Tyree Nichols. And it's likely that those officers violated his constitutional rights. You know, it looks like excessive force. It looks like there wasn't even perhaps reason for the stop in the first place. And now what we also see is that there are hospital costs, there are funeral expenses. His son has to go for a lifetime without support. And now all those costs 
fall on his mother. And that is unjust. And so what this bill would do is put responsibility where it belongs and put those costs onto the department. So this bill really provides victims of police violence with information, with compensation, and with justice. A compensation, justice, and accountability. And really, at the end of the day, something like this could potentially, by holding these departments financially responsible, it could encourage better behavior from these departments, right? That's right. I mean, we believe that the employer, the department, is in the best position to ensure that their officers are trained, that they are following the law, that they're following the Constitution, that they're disciplined if they are, if there is misconduct, et cetera. So it puts the onus back on the department and incentivizes them to have officers who follow the Constitution. Before I let both of you go, I wonder if there are, because there are a number of other bills that we didn't have time to get to, but I would just ask you each briefly if there are just a couple other pieces of legislation in this year's session that you would like us to, to know about. Leslie, I'll start with you. Thank you. We are working on House Bill 1579, which is creates an independent prosecutor at the Attorney General's office to um, take on the caseload re relating to deadly use of force by police officers. And uh, we're had a, it was passed today out of the House Committee, and it's going to the Appropriations Committee. So uh, we want people. We're looking at it. We're hoping people support it. And I'll also mention that we have a very active listening audience. So I'll, let's close here. What would each of you like to see people doing in support of the legislation that we have talked about? Leslie, I'll start with you. When we have committee hearings, we like people to sign in pro for the bills that we support. And if we oppose a bill like House Bill 1363, we want them to let their legislators know that we oppose it. If they want to go on at the ACLU's website or Washington for Coalition for Police Accountability, we both have active websites that tell our positions and have calls to actions on our websites. Terrific. Uh, Anoka, I'll give you the final word today. Uh, anything you'd like to see folks doing? If folks can show that they support these bills, that, that would be fantastic. And they can sign into the, to the state legislature website and sign in pro on SB 5572, that's the traffic stop bill, which has a hearing on Monday. So tune in then. Thank you for your support. Absolutely. Well, uh, Anoka Harat and Leslie Cushman, thank you both so much for joining us today. Awesome. Thank so well, thank you so much. And before we go, we have a closing word from our friend, Kat Pipkin, executive producer. Hello, Kat. Hey. So um, as you just heard from... WCPA and ACLU with Leslie and Anoka, they have regular actions along for all these bills. And the best place you can find all of that together all in one place is in the Take Action Network. Most individuals are familiar with this already, but if you're not, check in the show notes. There's a link to sign up. Uh, it takes you to a slide that talks about it. Uh, you just click the green button to actually register, and that will provide you with actions uh, from... Uh, from the podcast, from Wynn, and from Willa. Absolutely right. And uh, there's really no better way to get involved, ultimately, than with TAN. Uh, and we, we hear from lawmakers that it moves the needle. So keep up the great work, and thanks for joining us. And that'll do it for this week. The executive producer of the show is Kat Pipkin. If you would like to see a video version of this podcast, head to facebook.com slash indivisiblepodcast. The email address for the show is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to Lori Kowal. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. I'm Stephen Cox, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.